Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. The power of social media on The Long View, we take a closer look at the lawsuit filed against tech giant Meta. Hazardous to your health? A little bit of good news for Maui, a survey of a remote area on the Valley Isle for the destructive little red fire ant has turned up nothing. But 23 other species did. Maui Invasive Species Committee tells us why that is a good thing. And a Molokai filmmaker marshals the community to tackle some of its social issues. It's one of the few films to shoot entirely on the Friendly Isle. We'll hear from the director. He shares why it was important to tell the story. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Lots of eyebrows raised over a recent lawsuit filed against Meta, the parent company behind Facebook and Instagram, over the effect that some people think it has on the mental health of our young people. Here to talk about that is Neil Milner, our contributing editor on The Long View. Hi, Neil. Hi. <laughs> so Hawaii is one of 41 states that just yes. suit. It's a lot of states, 41 states. That means that you've got some Republican states, some Democratic states, you know, polarized, non-polarized states that have filed this suit together, which, of course, means it's a class action, which raises the ante a great deal. The suit, uh, I'll tell you briefly about the legal part because I want to talk more about the science that's going to be at the center of this, I think. The suit accuses Meta, the parent company, of essentially producing a product um, that is addictive to to kids, to pre to kids, especially adolescents, that they knew was harmful, and that they uh, purposely advertised it in a way that was deceptive, and that uh, it creates the product creates a great deal of mental and emotional harm among adolescents. And they did it willfully because they knew it was it was wrong, and that it's addictive. So that's pretty simplistic the way I explained it. But here's what you got to remember out of that: they're saying the uh, plaintiffs, attorney general, attorneys general, are saying it's addictive. Um, they're saying it's willful that they knew. And one word should come to mind: tobacco, because this is very much like the 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 framework for the tobacco case. There's some statutes that are involved. The case involves some kind of tricky issues about harm and not harm and when you have to show there's actually harm or when you can just show there's deception. But let's put that aside because what I want to focus on is what the science seems to suggest uh, about the harm that social media does to, to, to kids and uh, how that might play out in court. So why don't we listen to a, a one minute, and this is uh, by um, Jonathan Haidt getting interviewed by Joe Rogan. Jonathan Haidt was one of the psychologists, along with Gene Twangy, uh, who very much went into this data, found this stuff, and is very public in advertising the bad effects. So let's listen to the, a little bit of this. 
So Jean Twangy has a book called iGen, and she has some data in there that suggests that when you get social media in college, it doesn't seem to harm you, but when you got it in your preteen years, it does. Mm. And so, and she thinks that it's in part the nature of the bullying as such. Um, so, you know, sure, we want them to know how to deal with this, but you know, they can learn it pretty quickly when they're 15. It's not like they need a running start from 11 to 15. Right. So I just see no good whatsoever coming from social media in middle school, and I see a lot of harm. If you want your, and look, I go around the country, I talk about this, the, almost the rule now is when someone, you know, someone says, oh, well, my daughter's in high school and you know she's had it, and I say, how's she doing? Does she have anxiety problems? The answer is almost always yes. Mm. And if it's not her, then her friends are all crippled by or suffering from anxiety. Yeah. So I think we have to, you know, you have to weigh costs and benefits. A few years ago, we didn't know for sure about the costs, now we do. I mean, there's data that shows, right, the cases of depression and self-harm. Well, there's, there, there are two things that are clearly the case, and I'm, I'm getting this from Gene Twangy's recent uh, blog post, which is you can link onto, and it's a, she lists 13 reasons why this is the best explanation, the one that, that's here. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about them, but they essentially what they show is this, and this is pretty clear. Between that, that the rate for, let's call it, uh, mental and emotional distress was staying fairly steady until about 2012, which is about, about when the smartphone comes in and when the like comes on, and you saw a very quick increase in suicide rates for adolescents, in um, things like cutting your arms, in uh, visits to uh, psychiatric facilities. It was sudden. Um, it went up pretty quickly, and from recent studies, it isn't just an American thing. It shows up in other countries pretty much the same way, in, in European countries, in Scandinavia, some Latin American countries, and also uh, I, in Australia and I, and I think New Zealand. So, so that was the start, and what they've done since then is to look more closely at the data, which they say and is shows that it's harmful that they're they're you know they're not about the lawsuit they're not about who you know who wins but they say it's absolutely clear that the effect of of uh, on suicide rates was very quick very sudden much more sudden than you usually find in social science and that it started just when the smartphone came out. And so there's been a lot of research on that. And that to me is going to be at the center of this case for a couple of reasons. One of which is that it speaks to the issue, two of which um, it makes what Meta had did about knowing that this was the case on the basis of their own data, uh, that it, it means that they were willfully uh, violating, you know, willfully uh, getting kids to come online when they when they knew it would be harmful. So that's that's where that stands. What Twangy says is that if you look at all thirteen reasons why all th reasons why the explanation is strong, there's only one that she says is 
kind of nuanced and does play a role. Most of those things that she lists are fairly straightforward. There's a couple that involve some statistical st- things. But she said there is a bit of evidence that there is a link between social media and lack of depend- lack of independence on kids, that st- there is an argument that kids have become less independent, they become more sheltered. Uh, she says th- that's probably related to social media use, but that that deserves a certain amount of credit. So parents are coddling their kids more. Well, parents are coddling their kids, but she, that's a kind of, it's also a separate argument. Uh, that's, That's certainly a part of this and, you know, about fragility. But for the purposes of this, I think what's going to happen is that you're going to get, you know, you're going to get expert witnesses testifying to this kind of information. And the re- you always have to remember how different – this is not a science meeting. This is a court where there's adversarial procedures and where they're going to try to introduce other kinds of hypotheses uh, that explain it. But it's a very interesting kind of science thing because it doesn't feel at all like the fight over COVID. Because there seems to be an increasing consensus, you know, I was just talking to parents that th- that the social media has become a monster that we're having trouble controlling, and I think that consensus is going to get carried into the courtroom in some ways. But once you're in the courtroom, it's going to play a very different role. There's no guarantee that just because. This data looks good, and Jonathan Haidt and Gene Twangy are very good about explaining it, that that's going to mean that it's going to be definitive in court. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, are we as a, as a society uh, not uh, parenting properly and not uh, helping our kids to be more resilient, you know, when they're assaulted sure. by all this social media? Well, I mean, that's, again, that's, this is just like all lawsuits, this is just part of a much bigger question about how it is you know, what has social media done to us? What has it done for us? And what can we do to build on the good parts and to limit the bad parts? And so there's a lot of movements in some states to pass laws that restrict the use. Um, and then you start getting to the questions of, one, can you restrict it? Because kids figure out a way around the restrictions. Right, right. What a shock. Yeah, um, or, or is it a good idea to do it? Yeah. So is there more harm than good? So yeah. Well, we that's right. Yeah. And even if there is, can you do something about it? Right. Yeah. So we'll see how this plays out in court. But thank you, Neil. Sure. We've been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner, for our biweekly segment that we call The Long View. We'll have links to the articles and videos he referenced today on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Bishop Museum's new exhibit, Project Banabaw, about the people of Banabaw Island, relocated in 1945 after phosphate mining made the island unlivable. Opens this Saturday, bishopmuseum.org. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to TS Restaurants, and Hawaii Dermatology and Plastic Surgery Centers. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island, committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student, announcing admissions open houses November 4th and 8th. Registration at parkerschoolhawaii.org. statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In the early 1900s, news about the sport of surfing began making its way from Hawaii to the continental U.S., but for years the sport failed to break into mainstream culture. That changed in 1959 when Columbia Pictures released the film Gidget, which became a huge hit and introduced surfing to audiences on the mainland. The film starred Sandra Dee as Gidget and told a story centered around one teenager's initiation into surf culture in California, as well as her newfound romance with a handsome young surfer. The story was based on the real-life summer diary of a 16-year-old named Kathy Koner. The film was so successful that a sequel called Gidget Goes Hawaiian was filmed and released in 1961. But Sandra Dee was not able to reprise her role as Gidget because of contractual agreements with Universal Pictures. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of the actress who replaced Dee as Gidget in Gidget Goes Hawaiian? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NareedHawaii.com. It's official. The Maui Invasive Species Committee says a survey of 173 acres in Nahiku on Maui has not found any little fire ants. The area was previously infested, and for the last several years, teams of workers have tested out an aerial treatment that appears to have worked to sterilize the queens and to knock out the colonies. Brooke Mankin is with the Maui Invasive Species Committee, and Monty Tudor Long worked to identify more than 1,000 ants collected out in the field. They talked to us about the success of the approach to eradicate the invasive ants. 
originally from South America, those ants nest in trees and build super colonies and can blind animals. We start with Mankin. Yes, fantastic news. We've completed our most comprehensive survey of the Nahiku site to date. Uh, we broke previous year's records of area sampled, and we found no little fire ants. I mean, that really is impressive. Yes. I mean, we are also blown away. It's, um, it's quite an achievement for us, and we didn't know when we started this project how it would go, and this is just a delightful ending to our aerial treatments. You know, last time we spoke, we were right in the middle of this survey, and um, now uh, we have completed it, and it marks the first full-site survey of this uh, very large 175-acre area that we have found no little fire ants, and that was achieved with our aerial treatments of the area, which took place over uh, several years and um, has proven to us that uh, you can eradicate large infestations of little fire ants in Hawaii in wet, rugged, vegetated terrain. And is this the largest infestation that has been found to date across the state? Well, the Big Island is has um, multiple separate infestations that are much, much larger than um, anything found outside of the Big Island. Uh, but as far as infestations on any island other than the Big Island, yes, I believe it is the largest area um, controlled, infested, and um, tackled outside of the Big Island. And then, Monty, jump in here. I mean, you have been analyzing all the ant species that you've collected during the survey. Uh, you know, what was the other surprising takeaway for you? Well, I really have the fun job here. Um, I, we had over a thousand samples collected of, of ants, and I got to go through and identify all of them and count how many ants were in each sample. Um, we collected over uh, we collected 23 species of ants in Mexico, and um, which is an outstanding diversity to see in a site that formerly was occupied almost entirely by just little fire ants. Um, although the ants aren't native, none of the ants are native. Um, the seeing the other ants move back into the infested area is a, a, an excellent sign that the work has been successful. Oh, that's interesting. So they were kind of intimidated by these more aggressive species? Yes. The little fire ant is extremely, uh, I guess you'd say territorial. Um, it, it excludes pretty much all other ants when it moves in. And um, and so uh, it, it's disruptive in a lot of ways. And if it's excluding all these other ants, it's surely excluding a lot of our native insects and um, it's one of the main reasons it's considered a threat to native ecosystems is its ability to exclude um, not just other insects, but also small critters like um, geckos and, and, you know, other arthropods and vertebrates. I mean, I imagine they would probably impact our native snails. Yes, they would. Um, fortunately, at this time, we don't have little fire ants in the native forest where the native snails are 
you know, fighting their own battles to survive, but keeping them, keeping the little fire ants from moving into the native forest is a really high priority. And the native snails is one of those, one of many reasons. And so what can you share with us about the other types of species that you've found to be rebounding in Nahiku? So we see a lot of the more common species in high numbers, which is, you know, what we'd expect. But since we're going through the trouble to identify every single ant, um, we get a lot of fun surprises of ants that uh, we hardly ever get to see. Um, these uh, tiny trap jaw ants, for example, we found, I think, three of them, just three ants out of all the tens of thousands of ants. Um, they're these tiny ants with really long mandibles that snap shut when they stumble upon their prey. And has that been around on the islands for a while, do you know? They, ha- they have been, but they, they occur in very low numbers, and uh, they, they're, they're what we call obligate predators, where they, they generally don't come to baits, and so we don't often get to see them, except when they just stumble upon one of our traps. So it's, they're these beautiful little ants with heart-shaped heads. Um, Interesting. A lot of fun to look at under the microscope. Okay, so it was really kind of a treat for you to see the various species kind of pop up again. Absolutely. I, I love doing this. It's <laughs> like, imagine, imagine the joy that bird watchers get out in the field looking at birds. That's, that's the joy I feel looking through my microscope each time an ant comes comes by me okay well i don't share that but (laughs) uh uh, you know brooke i mean i don't know i mean when when you were out there i guess way back when when you first started this and you saw i guess the numbers of fire ants i mean the impact to the rest of the ecosystem when you come across a little fire ant infestation and the first thing you do is you have to map it in totality and then we call that delimitation what you find in the center of the infestation is only little fire ants you get very few samples that contain other ant species. And as you get to the edge of the infestation, where there are not little fire ants, you begin to see other ant species. And then you get outside of the infestation, and then it's all these other ant species. And although I knew that several years ago when we did our first survey of the Nihiku infestation, after having completed many aerial treatments, We went in and we weren't finding any ants at all. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, what are we doing wrong? We're not spraying right. But then we realized that's what we would expect to see after having treated the whole area. Any ants that are attracted to peanut butter, which is what we use to survey for little fire ants, would have also been attracted to the bait that we were using. And so these other ant species had also disappeared in the treatment zone. And so then the following year, we saw more ants starting to come back along the edges and repopulate the area, not little fire ants, because we had completely treated the zone that they were in. And then this year, even more now, 20% difference from last year in the number of ants that we are collecting in the infested area. So it's sort of, we're now seeing that rebound and it's quite remarkable. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about, you know, the efforts that are underway elsewhere on Maui? Absolutely. Across Maui, there have been 19 locations that we have found little fire ants since 2009. And those are the only areas on Maui 
little fire ants are known to be. And since then, we have been working on all of those sites. Hawaii Ant Lab was a huge help. Now we have taken the mantle and we continue to work on those sites. And we have eradicated seven of those sites. That means that it was over five years that we went back to survey those locations and did not find little fire ants. And so after the five-year period has passed, we call that eradicated and we celebrate and we're done with those sites. Four of those sites are in a monitoring phase and that means that we're not finding little fire ants and we just haven't hit that five-year mark yet, but they are well on their way to being declared eradicated. And so that leaves on Maui in total, currently there are eight sites that are being actively treated. Of those eight sites, the treatment zone, it totals 60 acres originally. However, we've been treating them for a while. So what we do is we refine our treatment zone as the area shrinks. We go in and we survey to see how we're doing. We're currently treating only just over 17 acres. So they are, of the eight active sites on Maui, we have reduced their area over 70%. We're really working only on a very small area, um, you know, less than 20 acres on Maui are being treated for little fire ants. So we're really looking good for our goal of total eradication. And then is there anything else that you want to add, Monty, just about, you know, the ants that you've been studying in the lab that have come from across uh, Maui? I, I suppose I'd love to add that we get ants samples sent to us from residents around the island, and it helps us determine the geographic extent of each species, and we really, really love getting these samples from the public. Hearing reports and concerns from the public is how we found most of these infestations. You know, we do our best to go out and survey as much as we can with our crews, but we can't cover the whole island, and so... We love it when people get involved and send us their ants. And at stoptheant.org, there's instructions on how to collect ants in your yard and mail them into us. And then I can get back to you and tell you all about the ants, that what species you have in your yard. There's other ants out there in the world that, you know, they're going to show up on our porch one day and we need to find them as soon as possible. And Brooke, so because you've got this success with this program, will it be more of an ask, you think, over at the legislature for this next session? I hope so. Mm -hmm. I hope that the other islands are asking for more and that the legislature and county councils understand the threat that they're up against. It's totally life-changing. Here on Maui, I don't think that we will be asking for additional funds than we normally get because we're doing really well here. We've got some really cool things coming down the pike. In the future, we're actually going to get a sniffer dog, this group in Australia that is uh, premier trainers for little fire ant sniffing dogs and other types of sniffing dogs. But this will be a fantastic tool in our toolbox to be able to go to sites where um, normally, you know, we have to go survey by putting our little peanut butter samples out, leave them there for an hour, come back, pick them up, uh, assemble all of these samples and have Monty look at them under the microscope. And um, only then can we know if we've found little fire ants, whereas this dog, when we take it to these sites, it will be able to nearly immediately determine if there are little fire ants present. We will, of course, continue to use the same methodology of surveying the site to be able to make that map and pinpoint the location, but it's going to be a great tool and we'll be able to share it with partners like Department of Ag 
where they can take this dog and run it by containers and things, shipments from other islands. We may be able to send that dog to other islands to help other efforts against little fire ants. That's really cool. That's Mm -hmm. already paid for that dog. So um, that's coming up. And then we've got additional tools. We hope to begin using drones to treat some of our sites for little fire ants, which is going to be really useful to get up to the tops of trees and not have to use a helicopter, particularly in some environments where there may be houses nearby and it's not appropriate to fly a helicopter right above somebody's house where um, we could we could use a drone to quickly go up and treat the treetops, increasing our efficacy and our tools. It's really exciting what we have planned. We've been hearing from Brooke Mencken of the Maui Invasive Species Committee. We also heard from researcher Monty Tudor-Long, who, by the way, the team affectionately calls Uncle Ant because he is passionate about ants. Uh, He shared with us that uh, last year he discovered a species on Maui's North Shore that is called the Dracula ant. It had not been previously seen in the world in the last 20 years, he tells us, so it's a mystery as to how it got here. Hey, it's DJ Mr. Nick of Bridging the Gap. HBR kicks off our Sound Salon series this Thursday night at 7 p.m. Join me in person in our Atherton studio in Honolulu. We'll take a musical deep dive into my five favorite female vocalists. Admission is $10, but seating is limited. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, managing water pipelines using satellite technology to help detect leaks and preserve water. Learn more at boardofwatersupply.com. Recruiting women for the police department. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Civil Beat politics editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this story is uh, by Madeline Valera, and I was surprised to read that HPD doesn't have a maternity policy. (laughs) Well, it it does in the sense that the uh, the city and county allow you to take... uh, your vacation uh, time and your sick leave, but no, there is no paid uh, maternity leave policy. That is one of the frustrations, major frustrations that Madeline reports on in getting women, more women on the force. It's not a problem that's unique to Hawaii. It's a nationwide problem. You know, she actually opens uh, with uh, interviewing a 17 year veteran, an officer uh, with HPD, mother of three, when she had her first child, she had to pump her breast milk uh, in the uh, the bathroom of the Waikiki uh, substation there. Uh, there was no lactation room, as has become more commonplace. By the time she had her third kid, the same officer was starting to think, you know, this is really difficult, finding child care. At the same time, she loves her job. Bottom line, women are, are, are highly underrepresented 
in what has always been or largely been a male-dominated dominated industry. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting uh, that you pointed out that, you know, yeah, HPD, you know, maybe needs to do more to recruit women because, uh, you know, I mean, I, we just saw the FBI do mm-hmm. uh, some programs when they were out there targeting women, and boy, did they get a lot of recruits. Right. Only about 13% of HPD uh, is female. Uh, that is the officers. That's the, actually the national average as well. But uh, the percentage is lower on the Big Island in Maui County. And, you know, Catherine, it's not like the HPD uh, doesn't need the cops. <laughs> they do. There are always vacancies. Right now, I think the current count is 407. Uh, recently, the, the most recent graduates from the police academy, only one out of the 20 that graduated were female. So this is a problem. You mentioned recruiting. I think one bright spot that comes out of the story is that that HPD is recruiting at high schools. They're recruiting uh, at the college level, athletics teams, sports teams, uh, trying to step up the efforts to say, here, here's a decent job. But without these fundamental basics like maternity leave, lactation room, child care, uh, it's a much less attractive uh, career move. Yeah, I mean, you've got to make this enticing for women to apply, one, and to stick around. Right, and Madeline really, uh, as usual, did her did her uh, due diligence. Austin, Texas, is, is a city where they've actually moved to have paid maternity leave. San Diego, the police force there, is just now introducing uh, some form of child care so that you can put your kids in a safe place while you're out there doing your job. Uh, so there are other municipalities, uh, some of them you know, comparable in size to Honolulu, which is about a million people, moving forward, uh, sort of evolving with the times. You know, here's another thing that I think came out of a story that really stayed with me. The research is, is pretty conclusive. Women officers, police cops, they're seen as more honest. They're seen as more compassionate. There are far fewer complaints against female officers as opposed to male officers. Uh, and they're particularly uh, better suited for handling things like sexual violence cases, uh, domestic abuse cases. And, and that would be all the more incentive for police forces to get more women on the force. Yes. And, you know, we did have the first female police chief, mm, uh, Susan, Susan Ballard. Ballard. Right. right, right. And, uh, you know, and I remember I think she was the chief when we lost our officer in a shooting, um, a female officer. There, oh, that uh, was the the Diamond Head yes, uh, case, right? right. The, the homes part. that went up, in, yeah, mm-hmm. went up in flames. A tra- terrible tragedy. A male officer, as well. You know, the police um, nationwide have have had it hard uh, since the George Floyd incident, really long before then. But in 2020, we all know about the killing of Floyd in Minneapolis and and the um, defund the police movement and so forth. And um, one of the points that comes across in Madeline's article is how police departments really could use uh, an improvement in their reputation and having more women on the force might well facilitate that. Uh, And uh, as I said, there certainly are plenty of vacancies out there. And uh, that has been a chronic problem for a very long time here in the islands. Yeah. So we'll see uh, what they and the union do to try and make it more enticing to get women to apply and to stay in the force. Yeah. Shopo, totally on board with this. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Civil Beats uh, Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Madeline's story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart brings us the hunting calls of the alala, the Hawaiian crow. The native crow is currently extinct in the wild, but officials are considering a new pilot program to release a few individuals on Maui. Here's your Manu Minute. The alala is a velvety black native Hawaiian crow that's actually more closely related to ravens. They were once common on Hawaii Island, but their numbers declined drastically in the 20th century due to habitat loss, hunting, and disease, to the point where there were none left in the wild. Today, they're one of the world's rarest birds. Alala played important roles as seed dispersers of many native forest trees. In 2017 and 2018, a number of birds were released into the wild on the slopes of Mauna Loa on Hawaii Island in hopes of reestablishing a wild breeding population. Things seemed hopeful for the first two years, but the native Hawaiian hawk, or eo, began to successfully prey on too many of them. So by late 2020, the last five wild birds were brought back into captivity. Like humans, alala learn their songs from each other, and recent research has shown that their vocalizations have changed in the years since they've been in captivity. Some territorial calls that were once common in wild birds are no longer heard in captive ones, like this... And also this one. Interestingly, the newly released wild birds seem to be learning a new vocabulary. And for a brief couple years, the soundscape of a Hawaiian forest once again included the calls of the alala. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society, connecting the community with the Manu Oku through programs to promote awareness, appreciation, and conservation of the official bird of Honolulu. Learn more at hiaudubon.org. it's time to drop in the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier, we asked you how much you know about surf movies, specifically one movie that is considered uh, to have kicked off the mainstream 1950s surfing culture. In 1959, when Columbia Pictures released the film Gidget, it was just about a single... It just about single-handedly introduced surf culture to a wider audience. The film starred Sandra Dee in the title role of a teenager and her newfound romance with a young and handsome surfer named Jeffrey Matthews, uh, a.k.a. Moondoggy. The uh, story was based on the real-life summer diary of a 16-year-old 16, 16 Kathy Koner. The movie was so successful that a sequel called Gidget Goes Hawaiian was filmed and released in 1961. Unfortunately, Dee was not able to reprise her title role because of contractual agreements with Universal that prevented her from participating in non-studio projects. So, Deborah Wally was cast to replace Dee as Gidget, which led to her appearance in several beach party films in her career. And congrats uh, to Ilarka Ewan from Makakilo. You are today's winner. And that's our quiz. If you'd like to uh, write 
an idea, write one, uh, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. is the title of a film produced by one of Molokai's own. HBR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel joins us to tell us about the short by Matt Yamashita, who listeners may know as a documentary filmmaker. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so what does Kala mean? So Kala actually has a couple of multiple meanings, actually, in Hawaiian. One of the meanings is referring to a species of unicorn fish. So it's, it's a the fish with sort of the horn on the front of its head that is referred to uh, frequently in the film. And the Hawaiian word kala also means to release or to forgive. And so it's one of the many underlying kauna or veiled meanings throughout the film. And of course, the name is really poignant um, through the themes of the film, which features two estranged brothers. And... One of them is overcoming addiction in the film, and their father is on his deathbed, and he wished for Kala to eat. He said, I'm Ono for Kala. And that was his way of asking the brothers together to go out and catch him this fish, which he knew would actually uh, bring them together. And so it's it's a story of overcoming addiction, finding forgiveness, mending these broken family relationships that so many in our community can really relate to. Matt Yamashita says the film doesn't focus on the drama of addiction's challenges, but rather on the healing aspect of recovery. The story itself addresses a lot of different themes, but at core is the theme of forgiveness or healing through forgiveness. It revolves around the relationship of two brothers, two estranged brothers who had a falling out and hadn't spoken to each other in years because of the main character's history of substance abuse. But where the story starts is that brother, Kavika, the main protagonist, has cleaned up. He's been sober for over two years and his brother still hasn't been speaking to him. So the, the whole story kind of revolves around them reconnecting, airing some of their hurts and resentment and ultimately finding a pathway to healing. And this all is at the request of their dying father. And again, the storyline, this isn't a documentary, it's a a drama, a short. That's right. It's a narrative script. And as you mentioned, we know Matt Yamashita as a documentary filmmaker, but he actually wrote this over 10 years ago. Uh, He wrote the script, and he went to school for narrative script filmmaking. So although a lot of his recent work has been really compelling documentaries, this is um, resurfaced for him after, you know, more than a decade. The team decided to create the film this past summer and finish it in just a couple of months from start to finish, which is which is really fast. Uh, they crowdsourced funding. Uh, the filming took place over only two days on the east end of Molokai. And The island, it it comes at a time where the island has suffered some recent losses from mental health illness, from suicide, from a lot of the themes that the film talks about. And so it was really emotional for the crew and the cast who are all from Moka'i. And a lot of the cast could relate to the storyline in various ways. Um, Yamashita says it resonated for them really personally. 
Here is Junior Joao, who plays the brother of the main character in the film. When Matt initially approached me about it, I wasn't interested. It was uh, stepping out of the comfort zone, yeah. But read the story, read the dialogue, was something that went really hit home for me. In the past, I had battles with addiction myself, and so like reading the dialogue was something that I felt strongly about sharing with the public because it hits home in a lot of areas, whether you're struggling with addiction or whether you're struggling with forgiveness or even the family members of people who struggle with these things, you know, because they're just as much affected, whether it be addiction, mental illness. It's not just the addict themselves. It's the whole circle involved, their family members, their kids. So when I read it, it was something that really moved me. So I told Matt, I said, okay, uh, let's do it. I hope that this film can express the importance about forgiveness. You know, we only get on short time here on Earth and just love each other, forgive, um, make amends. Once somebody passes on, that option of closure is gone. And, and a lot of times forgiveness is not necessarily for the other person, but it's for our own selves. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's really a case of buying about, right, uh, by the people of Molokai about the life there on Molokai. It is. And Matt Yamashita said that that was their first and foremost goal was to create it for uh, the community here. But of course, he hopes that it will be relatable to a really broad audience. Um, As he said, you know, these these themes are are things, challenges that a lot of people face in a lot of different communities. And he was born and raised on Molokai, so of course this community is, is really dear, near and dear to him and, and everyone who was involved in the film. And, um, you know, again, as he said, it, it came at a really meaningful time for the community. It just had its world premiere on Molokai a few weeks ago, and it will be shown over the next couple of weeks on island, um, paired with a documentary, another docu- uh, a documentary film from Aotearoa called Shot Bro. And that's the story of a man who survived his suicide attempt. And so pairing these two films, uh, Yamashita hopes will be a really powerful beginning or a continuation really of, of the dialogue around these challenging subjects for Molokai. And it also won uh, honorable mention at the Hawaii International Film Festival just recently in the Made in Hawaii short film category. And it'll be entered into film festivals across the Pacific over the next year. Here's Matt Yamashita talking about the film's intended audiences. Our intention in making this film was this film is for a Molokai audience first and foremost. We hope that it's a positive takeaway. Either, you know, like, hey, I have unresolved relationship issues with a family member or a friend, and maybe I should look at that. Or, hey, I'm suffering from substance abuse, suffering from mental health or emotional stress or problems. Maybe I should talk to somebody. Or even on the simplest level, you know, walk away just feeling really proud. Like, hey, I'm from Molokai. I throw net or I'm a fisherman. I'm a hunter. And this story makes me feel good that this is something that is unique to our way of life and something to feel good about. So even though it is intended first and foremost for our Molokai community, we still are hoping that the authenticity of it, the uniqueness of the subject matter and the storytelling will captivate general audiences. We also hope that the story itself is universal enough that they will relate somehow to the story because everybody can relate to feeling hurt or feeling angry to the point where we stop talking to someone or there's a major 
block in that relationship and the value of navigating your way back to those people through forgiveness and out of a desire to restore relationship and, and love, really. Yeah, and going back to that authenticity, right? Real stories, um, stories that ring true. Yes, and, and Yamashita said, uh, as we just heard, that he really wants this film to reflect Molokai. He talked about using the pidgin language throughout the film. He talked about, you know, highlighting uh, the culture and the lifestyle, like throwing net is something that he said he hasn't seen really highlighted in a lot of films before. And so finding that kala, that fish for their dying father, and through that act of of throwing the net, of finding the kala, uh, these two brothers, you know, find, reconnect and find that forgiveness that um, I think everyone involved in the film really hopes that viewers can take away from, from watching it. Well, I, I can't wait to see it. But, uh, yeah, they, you always hear, write what you know. And so, yeah, um, I think this is probably an example of that. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HPR's Catherine Cluett-Pactel talking about the short film Kala by Molokai's Matt Yamashita. But up tomorrow, a young person displaced from Lahaina during the wildfires ponders the future. Can you really go home again? Share your memories and stories of Lahaina as we work through this recovery phase. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.